to that 80s show and this week you can blame Canada. It's all Canada's fault for the amazing music you're going to hear over the next hour or so. Canada, the better America. Can we say that, Dari? Eh? Eh? What? Eh? <laughs> you promised me you wouldn't do that. <laughs> Dari, yes. you can introduce the theme of the week because you came up with it. It's so clear. I don't even know how I came up with it, though. I can't even remember. All I know is that I kind of was like... You know, we did that Australian show. Do you remember? We did a show a while mm. back where we were like songs from Australia. And I was like, well, where else, like, haven't we, have we, have we not done songs from that is not the usual UK, USA type thing. And then I was like, oh, let me look into Canada. And then I was like, m- mind blown that so many of our favorites, and I didn't even know we're from Canada. So. Right. I know. When you shared the list with me, I was like, no, surely, no. I, I, sorry, I, <laughs> double checked you because I was like surely Canada we're just going to play like an hour of Celine Dion and Brian Adams right. like that that's pretty much what I thought mm-hmm. but lazily mm. but uh, so this week is all the Canadians uh, but I'm actually going to start with uh, America actually um, for the first time it's happened while we've been doing this show on a weekly basis that one of our favorite 80s yeah shows has been has got its reboot and we can talk about it uh, well other than cobra kai okay so yeah. so cobra kai was one but we missed the new ghostbusters um the one with the ladies i still haven't watched that no don't do it uh, that's why I'm not the <laughs> there is a new ghostbusters well it was supposed to come out last year but there is a, a follow-up ghostbusters sort of story lives in the same universe which that should be quite good but we've been waiting and waiting and waiting for years for the sequel to coming to america yeah and uh, last week on Amazon Prime, coming to America, number two came out. Now, it goes 30-odd years into the future. It's in current day. We're in Zamunda. Eddie Murphy is now the king, and uh, he needs an heir to his throne, and he finds out that he has a son conceived during his time in New York City. So they go back to get him. And train him up and prepare him for his role as royalty. Dory, what you said you haven't watched the movie, I watched it. What have been your feedback? What has been your feedback on coming to America? So, first of all, I didn't even know that that was the plot line. Thanks for the spoiler. No, I'm, I'm kidding. I don't, I don't really care. I didn't know that that was the plot it's line. It's all the trailers. It's in, it's in all the trailers. Okay, well, I, didn't I, ruin anything. I don't watch trailers. I haven't watched the trailer. But now, here's my question now that you've said that Who else did he sleep with when he was there? In the first movie, he's only got eyes for one woman. So so they retcon it, right? So <laughs> in a deeply uncomfortable but also quite funny scene, um, they retcon how this is possible. Because you're quite right. He, he only had eyes for one woman. Yeah. But no, so they make okay. up some elaborate retcon scene. Yeah. God, okay. So I've seen very mixed reports of this movie. Um, you know, the people who are big fans of Nomzam and Bata, are like, mm-hmm. oh, this is amazing, this is wonderful, you must watch her, she's fantastic. But they're not talking about the movie itself, they talk about her in the movie. Mm. And so they're, they're, they're being very positive about it. And um, then there's been uh, a couple of articles that I've seen about how, well, no, no, it's ruined, it's, you know, whole woke culture has ruined this, it's just, it's no good. So I've seen very mixed responses. And yeah, like I said, I haven't watched it yet. Um, I started watching, 
on Friday when it came out, I watched the first five minutes just because I was excited to like see what the whole thing was about. I watched the first five minutes. I didn't have time to watch more, but even in the first five minutes, I was like, I'm going to have to scale down my expectations on this, I think. Like I could already see, oh, there's also been reports about how it's Afrophobic. So there's, there's the mixed reports where it's like, oh, the woke culture has ruined it, or it's actually still um, offensive to African people. So I don't know. So, tell me. Yeah, so so right. And and I'm going to tell you something right now. You know, for me, Eddie Murphy can do no wrong. Yeah. And I'm going to touch on this a little bit later in the show. Eddie Murphy can do no wrong. You need to scale your expectations down to fucking Meet Dave levels of Eddie Murphy movie. Right? Remember Meet Dave where he has like a giant head? I, I never even watched that. But Dave. I do remember okay. it. Yes. You have to scale yourself down to 90s movies levels of expectation with Eddie Murphy. It is a fucking nightmare. <laughs> I mean, that you say, I'm quite surprised. I haven't seen anything that said work culture ruined it. I found it so, and I, listen, I'm not like, I'm not like uh, sensitive or anything like that. Yeah. But I felt quite uncomfortable yeah. with the portrayal of Africa. The, everyone what? spoke in this weird accent. Okay. Every African was a stereotype. I mean, you had the warlord, Wesley Snipes is a warlord trying to marry off his daughter. Again, I'm not uh, giving anything away. It's all in trailers. Okay. Um, the perceptions, everyone in Africa is either a servant, except they're servants to Eddie Murphy's family. Yeah. But they're still s- servants. The American characters are like these cheap Tyler Perry, Medea ripoffs that are just so stereotypical. Mm-hmm. It's just... I felt uncomfortable. And like, what position do I have to say I'm uncomfortable? I felt it was such an uncomfortable movie and just so cheap. It was just like, it was just so cheap. It's like there was no effort put into reimagining the movie. So, I mean, all that stuff that you've just said, that whole portrayal of Africa was in the original. It was like that. But we were like, Mm -hmm. oh, well, that's how the 80s were, right? So, you know, that's just how it was. So you're saying that... Eddie Murphy kind of was like, well, I'm not changing. We need to stick to the original idea and screw everyone who's going to be offended and sensitive about it, maybe. And and there's like, there's definitely like Black Panther Wakanda comparisons, right? Uh Because it's both these fictional African. But the way they handled Wakanda was just so respectful and and researched. And there was still like weird little accents and things like that. But it wasn't. (laughs) <laughs> and then on top of it, you know, I think you can take like like cultural cultural snafus when it's kind of funny in a way, mm. but it's not even fucking funny. It was a nightmare, a nightmare. So, I'm so sad. So are we saying, Paolo, that Eddie Murphy can do wrong? There's a dissertation, Dory. <laughs> I have gone down a path and uh, I will... I will ask you to put on your comfortable shoes for a little bit later in the show Mm -hmm. to come down this path with me. So I think it's quite apt that this week we are in Canada because we done went to America and we went back to America and it was shit. (laughs) (laughs) This is that 80 show. Very serious opening by Dorian. Our very serious Hmm. movie conversation we had. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And now in our actual movie review segment, we're just going to talk shit about movies and trash them. Right, Dory? Um, I'm not going to trash my movie. <laughs> my movie is something that actually I enjoyed. And it's not 
uh, deeply depressed, depressing maggot movie. Just I'm just gonna, I'm going to have to say this for the next few weeks until the trauma is passed. From, <laughs> from um, my movie is is a mixture of serious and and funny. You know how like there'd be like the serious dramas and then once in a while there'd be like a funny one-liner, that kind of thing. Like when we discussed the action movie that time when we did um, uh, uh, Deadly Pursuit and it was action, action, serious, and then funny one-liner. This is serious, serious drama, funny one-liner. But it really works. And this movie is definitely a, a serious classic. I remember hearing about this movie probably in the late 80s, even though it came out in 1983, everywhere, everywhere you turn, people were talking about this movie. This is like the iconic, it's a, an iconic movie of the 80s. It's like, it's an, um, a really Ooh. important film, a very well-known ensemble cast, and I hadn't watched it. And I got around to watching it when I was older, probably in the late 80s, maybe early 90s, I eventually watched this film. And I loved it, absolutely loved it. And then I had forgotten about it completely. And then I was um, looking for something to do for the show. And I, I remembered this movie. What I can tell you about this movie is that it inspired the very insipid 90s TV series, 30-something. Oh, God, that was awful. terrible. Like, now, you gotta, now, in the 90s, yeah. like, like honestly, like in the 90s, for me, a teenager, a show about 30-something was like, oh, my God, may as well be 80-something. <laughs> So I would no way. I mean, I think now even uh, like, you know, we're (coughs) older, um, we still wouldn't appreciate 30 something because it was just (laughs) crap. It was horrible. It was just a horrible show. When I saw that that was inspired by this movie, I was like, oh, no, you're joking. Because this movie is really great. I'm going to tell you, this movie stars Tom Berenger, Glenn Close, Jeff Goldblum, William Hurt, Kevin Kline, Meg Tilly, Mary Kay Place and Joe Beth Williams. They oh, are wow. the main cast. It's a very amazing ensemble cast. And I have to say, Jeff Goldblum is, I mean, he, we always love him. He's amazing. But his character is such a creep in this movie. It's hilarious to watch. Jeff Goldblum playing a creep. Let me mm. imagine. Let mm. me imagine. <laughs> he does it really well. And all the, all the cast in this movie, they are in their 30s. But they... Um, originally met in, uh, let's go their late teens, early 20s, because they are friends from college who have reunited. And they have reunited for the funeral of one of their members of their friend group who has committed suicide. It's about everything. Uh, uh, suicide, despair, uh, where did our hope go? Lost hope, that's it, lost hope. Columbia Pictures invites you. To return to the weekend that started it all. Remember the music and the moments. The ground is ready. I just need someone to plant the seed. Yeah, but who's going to be the lucky farmer? You want me to what? The friendship. Oh my God! And the romance. Alex and I made love the night before he died. It was fantastic. (laughs) The laughter. And the tears. I feel like I was at my best when I was with you people. Not me. Getting with you people is the best thing ever happened to me. I mean, how much sex, fun, friendship can one man take? (laughs) Fifteen years ago, The Big Chill helped launch the careers of some of today's biggest stars. And became one of the most memorable films of the decade. You were hallucinating pretty bad that night. 
We didn't even have any drugs. Now, on November 6th, The Big Chill is back on the big screen. Really? On a digitally remastered print and in stereo for the first time. Tom Berenger, Glenn Close, Jeff Goldblum, William Hurt, Kevin Kline, Mary Kay Place, Meg Tilly, and Joe Beth Williams. You know, you'd never get a crowd this big at my funeral. Oh, Karen, come on, I'll come and, uh, you know, I'll bring a date. In a cold world. Wise up, folks, we're all alone out there. You still need your friends to keep you warm. I don't know what people think about me. You don't have that problem here. You know I don't like you. The Big Chill, a Lawrence Kasdan film, in theaters November 6th. I have heard of the movie Big Chill, but I somehow thought it was Sylvester Stallone being trapped in an avalanche. And let me tell you something funny about that, right? So, yeah. so you, you watch that. Yeah. And so it says there, uh, you know, starring some of the biggest actors of our time. Yeah. And it's true. Mm-hmm. But you don't, because we're so used to seeing them older, even though you see them young, you still see them old. <laughs> do you know what I mean? They do look old. <laughs> they do look like, I mean, they're supposed to be in their they 50s. Don't look, like, yeah, they're no. They're supposed no. to be younger than I am now? What? <laughs> No, <laughs> these, these people are not looking like they in their 30s. I mean, Kevin Klein, look at him. Oh, no, 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 no. Uh, so, no, uh, I, and I've got to be honest, although, yeah, I've got to be honest, I would have preferred it if all of them were trapped in an avalanche um, and started freezing to death one by one. That's what I was really hoping for. Well, that would have been that, dramatic. It's not that kind of movie. So, the only thing I have, to, I have, I have complaints about is that the soundtrack is all 60s and 70s even though the movie is supposedly set in 1983 as well. Like it's, they, were, they were in college 15 years before, which would have been the late 60s. So the music is from the time when they all got together, mm. and their, you know, their memories and all that kind of stuff. So the soundtrack is all 60s and 70s, but it's still great. I mean, great songs. And so the thing is, it's like, it's kind of almost a lot of stuff you would expect. These people get together. So in the original version... Kevin Costner played the guy who killed himself, and apparently there were scenes with him in it. I assume flashbacks, and or possibly mm-hmm. there was a scene because there's a scene where like um, he's in the it's an open coffin at the funeral, so possibly they showed him. And then what happened was the director, who is a very famous director, Lawrence Katzen, he's done many many things that we know and love. He decided to cut all the scenes with, uh, with Kevin Costner's face, which, um, <laughs> according to one of the reviews I read, no no no, made it more intriguing more mysterious because the whole movie they're talking about this friend of theirs who's died and he's he's like a mystery he's an enigma because you don't know what he looked like you don't know anything you don't know anything about him you only know what you hear about him through these people and i thought that was actually quite clever i think it it definitely made it more interesting not knowing who it was but of course now we all know it was kevin costner so we could picture it but (laughs) i I was like what did kevin costner look like when he was younger probably much the same as he looks like now um (laughs) according to your thing and of course, it's all the, you know, like, kind of like, oh, you know, this person slept with this person, this one, this person wants to sleep with this person. So there's a bit of sex stuff. What a shitty bunch of friends. No, I think it's, I think it's quite realistic. It's also extremely white and extremely straight. This movie would not exist today because like all white straight people, it just wouldn't exist. But <laughs> that's what it was in 1983. <laughs> it's a, it's a really worthy watch. It's, it's got serious adult themes. They sit and they talk about deep issues 
In a way, this movie could be a play because there's so much just sitting and talking. But I, that's kind of what I liked about it. So it's a bit arty and interesting. Yeah, I mean, if you haven't watched it, if you're old enough to appreciate it, I think I think it's worthwhile. This is that 80 show movie time and war games. War game movies were very big in the 80s, Dory. Do you remember? Would you have watched it many? We did talk about one a while back. I can't remember what was it called, war games. <laughs> It could have been. Um, obviously, America was in the Cold War at the time, so it was like a relevant topic. But there were a lot of movies about defense systems and secret government operations and developing weapons. And and there was quite a common theme. So in my movie, uh, follows quite a, quite a similar uh, theme. And you have this engineer, weapons engineer, designing a super tank, the XM-10 Annihilator. Okay, you know it was the 80s because it was called The Annihilator, right? Okay, yeah. So he's trying to get this tank developed, but obviously within a government organization, he meets resistance along the way, and there are various people with different agendas, and they're trying to stop him, change his plan, put obstacles in the way to divert the project into the way they want to do it. So you've got this political intrigue. Um, in between, there's some stupid love triangle between this engineer, another one, and, and the engineer's wife, but that's unnecessary. Mm-hmm. So this movie runs along, and they show it to a test audience, and the test audience goes, fuck me, that movie is terrible. <laughs> that movie is a nightmare. Firstly, firstly, the engineer, do you think Dudley Moore – makes a convincing scientist. Oh, no. <laughs> a smart person. No. Right? Oh, no. Okay. Dudley Moore is such a hit and miss actor for me because he was an author. Yeah. And then I feel like he was in a lot of stuff in the 80s playing Arthur constantly. And then also, I didn't know him and Liza Minnelli were separate people. So every time I saw her, I thought she was Dudley Moore. So I just felt Dudley Moore was like in a lot of shit. And... He plays Arthur as a scientist. So he, he's bumbly and he's sort of drunk. Was Dudley Moore always drunk? I think he always acted drunk, even if he wasn't really. I mean, he always seemed yeah, drunk. Definitely, yeah, so it's very unbelievable. So, I mean, I think besides the sort of weapons and intrigue and stuff like that, you know, this guy just isn't a believable science, scientist. So what do you do in the 1980s, mid-80s, right? Yeah. Your movie's just tested as a bomb. So shit, we need to fix this movie. Who do you send an SOS out to to bring into your movie to fix it? Considering who we spoke about in the opening link, a man who could do no wrong in the 80s. <gasps> okay, Eddie Murphy. So they call in Eddie Murphy, right? Okay. To as What they called him is a strategic guest star. <laughs> Even in the trailer, it says strategic guest star. Eddie Murphy. How blatant is that, that they fucked the whole thing up? Like, we are not, we understand the concept. This show is a nightmare. Last week, we brought in Damon Calvary as a strategic guest star to lift (laughs) up the quality, right? We, 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 so we don't condemn it. (laughs) Okay. So they bring Eddie Murphy in. Now, they create this device because they go, well, we've shot one movie. Eddie Murphy's not in it. How do we get him in? So they create this device that the movie takes place in two separate years, 
Okay. So the original part of the movie that they already shot happens in 1982. And then they skip forward. They keep cutting forward to 1984 where the tank has been developed and is now out in the field in Kuwait. Because Eddie Murphy plays this brash, cocky, loudmouth soldier. Surprise, surprise. Mm -hmm. Who's now the test driver, pilot. I don't know what a tanker does. What do you do with a tank? Tanker? Maybe it's a tanker. A test tanker (laughs) for this tank that they developed in 1982. And you watch decisions made in 1982 that then now play out in 1984. Okay, now sort of clever, but it just doesn't work because the movies are so unrelated. Eddie Murphy never interacts with anybody in the 1982 story. And it was two movies shot separately to help save the movie. It doesn't sound like it saved it from the way you're speaking. Oh, Dory. So Eddie Murphy himself said five months after the film comes out. Now, five months means it's going into video stores, right? Yeah. Right? He's on, he guest hosts SNL. Really? That was my vibe last year. And after I did 48 Hours in Trading Places, all these scripts started coming from everywhere. And I picked up a script called Best Defense. Here's a movie that sucked real bad. <laughs> at first, I wasn't going to do it because I read the script and I felt like I was an actor at first. But the money they gave me to do it, y'all would have did Best Defense too. Okay? <laughs> But they, I read the script at first, and the script was terrible. I was like, what? How dare you give me a script like this? Oh, that much money? Let's go. <laughs> so I read the script for Best Defense. I went out and did Best Defense. Best Defense turned out to be the worst movie ever done in the history of anything. And all of a sudden, I wasn't that hot no more. So I called up the producer, Saturday Night Live, and I go, um, you still got my dressing room? And he said, why don't you... <laughs> I wonder if we've come full circle of going, Eddie Murphy, like he he did a lot of duds. Let's just be honest. I think his latest movies are dud. Mm-hmm. Can we trace it back after doing Trading Places and 48 Hours and, and Beverly Hills Cop? And was Best Defense the beginning of the end for him? Have we come full circle? But that's the movie called Best Defense. However, there is one redeeming feature of the movie just because it introduces a very clever concept for us and I think it's something that we could adopt for the show I'm going to play the trailer for you okay, okay I'm going to play at a very specific point because the trailers don't even listen to that shit even the trailer they called it in because they very specifically said two men from two different worlds whose paths will never cross <laughs> You don't even set it up like that, right? Who <laughs> got paid to come up with this save in inverted commas? Oh, my, oh my God. God, right? I'm, I'm going to play the movie at this specific point. I hope you can hear it because it's obviously like in 1980s trailer quality and it's very noisy. But I want you to listen out for something and we'll talk about it afterwards. Just take a listen and listen closely. Ow! If the wham overheats, its thermal level could make the dip malfunction. Wham! No! The wham is overheating! What the hell is a wham? What the hell is a wham? It's the wham power resistor. It's the driving force behind the whole tank is the wham. Not spelt the same as wham, but wham power resistor. And I just love that saying. Don't you, Dory? That's funny. That is funny. So if you take anything from this. I've literally seen five seconds of the trailer and it looks horrific. Oh, no. it It is as bad I don't even think the trailer, of course they wouldn't. The trailer, nothing, nothing mm. can can display or showcase how bad that movie is. But if you're going to take anything from that movie, just 
be a wham power resistor. You you can't resist wham power. Once the wham overheats, it's going to get you. <laughs> so this isn't a movie reminder or recommendation. It's a movie warning. It's a movie examination. It's a career examination of Eddie Murphy. Mm. Starting at coming to America, did it all start with best defense? Mm. Did best defense lead us to this point via Dave, Meet Dave and via the clumps and via the one where Eddie Murphy can't speak and via Daddy Daycare? Oh, yeah. You're reminding me of a lot of bad so, things. So it was a deep introspective movie moment mm -hmm. by Dory and Barry Rong over here. <laughs> <laughs> this is That 80 Show playing all the Canadians and what a bunch of hit makers those goddamn Canadians are. I love a Canadian. I love them. Last week we spoke about a very bizarre uh, cameo of Boy George in the A-Team. Dory, did you check out any of the clips that I put on that 80 show essay on Facebook. I did. Oh, amazing, hey? Uh, oh, amazing. I mean, that's the only word to use, really. Especially when he karate, karate kicks. Karate. You can't even say karate. <laughs> karate kicks. <laughs> he karate kicks the door open. <laughs> with, with his little boots. <laughs> his little high-heeled boots. Oh, God, it was the best. I love that shit so much. But mm. what we spoke about as well is that uh, Miami Vice were doing all the cameos back then and and they were popularizing it and actually the culture club uh i love thinking of the culture club as an entity you know that they they advised boy george uh to not appear on um miami vice and not take a cameo and rather go to 18 because they felt that he was too camp for miami vice right mm, yeah so right <laughs> just think still about that about for a that. second still laughing about it. Miami Vice was the undisputed king of cameos back then, okay? So many stars no, like got a break or had an appearance on Miami Vice, and so many big names made cameos. So we're going to talk about some of the people that had a little bit of a starring role who then went on to become big actors, or others who were big names and did little cameo appearances on Miami Vice. Mm -hmm. So did you know that Ben Stiller was on Miami Vice? no. I mean, I watched every single episode back then, but I remember very little, I'll be honest. Small-time appearance. He played a con man. Okay. Um, Steve Steve Buscemi, he hmm. was also on mm -hmm. Miami Vice. Julia Roberts. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. She played an art gallery manager slash drug dealer's assistant with a penchant for bad boys. <laughs> and Sunny is just her type. <laughs> um, who else we got here? We had Liam Neeson. Mm -hmm. Obviously, I, I, you uh, know, I'm not a fan of Liam Neeson. I think he no. has plays one role every every time. Yeah, no, of course, yeah. and probably played in this as well because he played an Irish gangster. So, I mean, yeah. Yeah. you know, started out there. He was a former IRA member and current terrorist. Mm -hmm. uh, Kramer from Seinfeld, Michael Richards. He was in uh, Miami Vice. Wow, that's surprising. What did he play? Yep. Because, I mean, he's, a, he's just like a clown. A sleazy bookie. Okay, that makes sense. Played a sleazy bookie. Also in there is uh, Bill Paxton, big cool. name in the 80s. I like him a lot. Chris Rock, comedian, funny yeah. guy. Chris Rock, yep. Sure, but how old? I mean, these people must have been quite young. No, super young. Super, super young. And probably the biggest name uh, to make an appearance in Miami Vice. He was, I just want to see uh, the timing of it. 
is uh, Bruce Willis. Oh, was he yeah. um, taking some time off from moonlighting? It was actually before moonlighting. So it's, it was four months before moonlighting. He appeared in Miami Vice. Okay. He was play, played an arms dealer, so Bruce Willis there. He should have stuck with Miami Vice because Moonlighting was awful. Do you think he was inspired in Miami Vice to start doing Beach Boy cover songs? <laughs> Terrible. You think, hey, this could have been. It could have been. He could have liked the free-flowing shirts. He could have taken one look at Don Johnson and said, that's my life. Mm-hmm. But then, of course, those are actors who started out small roles, became big, big stars. After, after this amazing Canadian, Ken Amazing... Amazing alien song break. We'll come back and talk about some of the massive stars who made a cameo in Miami Vice. This is that 80 show, and we're talking about the cameos. Miami Vice was the king of cameos on uh, primetime TV. Uh, just before the break, we spoke about uh, actors who had small roles in Miami Vice. Now, let's talk about some big stars. Dory, I'm going to hit you straight away, straight away. And shouldn't surprise you at all. Glenn Frey had yeah, a cameo. I remember that. That I remember. Ah. Because also, I mean, you know, his song was on the soundtrack. You Belong to the City, I think, was on the soundtrack. That's it. Yeah. And I actually remember when he was on the show. I do remember that. Ah. Hmm. Do you remember Gene Simmons from Kiss? But would we have recognized him without the makeup? Or was he wearing the makeup? No, no makeup. But he had that crazy hair. That hair is unmistakable. Uh-huh. Definitely unmistakable. Not a fan of him, but Leonard Cohen was Ooh. on... Uh, mm. I'm a fan. He said, I'd gone into the show because my kids watched Miami Vice and I wanted to surprise them by being on it. <laughs> so, nice, Dad. <laughs> <Funny>. <laughs> Little Richard. Now, talking about being too camp for Miami Vice. <laughs> I mean, really. <laughs> <laughs> he had a, a quick little cameo. Barbara Streisand. Hmm. Yep, she had also a short little cameo. Willie Nelson. Oh, awesome. Was he a, like a pot-smoking hippie? With his he was grade? just a cowboy. Oh. Just a cowboy. Okay. And something about a Bolivian drug lord. I feel like every second episode of Miami Vice is about a Colombian. A, a Colombian what did I say? Bolivian. Caribbean. Lots Colombian. of drug lords. Lots of drug lords. <laughs> American drug lords. <laughs> Speaking of drugs, hmm. although he says he never took drugs, Frank Zappa. Oh, okay. Cool. Frank Zappa and James Brown as well. Wow, hey? Yep. I feel like this makes me kind of want to watch them all over again. But I know because I have watched one. Oh, you're going to hate it. Recently-ish, as in the late 90s, I was traveling in the USA and I was staying in a motel. And they had reruns of Miami Vice. And I got so excited. And then I was like really disappointed. It was really horrible. It was bad. I know. Although I'm tempted to watch the one that had an appearance by the power station. <gasps> Ooh. Mm, mm. Mm. Glorious photo, yeah, in the article I have. Many a shirtless man. Many a shirtless man. Hmm. <laughs> we love her. Sheena Easton. Oh, yes. Of course we love her. Yes. She was uh, also made an appearance. Jan Hammer. Yes. Well, he did, the, he did the soundtrack. But the biggest name, or for me, the, the name that got my attention the most is uh, Mr. Feel It in the Air Tonight, Phil Collins. Oh, I didn't know he was actually on the show because hmm. that song's also on the soundtrack. Yeah. It is. He played a con artist game show host who steals the winnings he's supposed to be giving away on air. Huh. 
Which do you think came first? Do you think they were on the show first and then got to do the soundtrack, or they were on the soundtrack anyway and then they and then like the producer was like, "Hey, would you like to be on the show?" Yeah, because Miami Vice they used it as a, as a tool to bring in people on cameo, so I'm sure that they did the soundtrack first and then later on just try to find a gap in their schedules. You know, your people speak to my people, they'll do some coke, and then next thing you're a con artist on Miami Vice. This is that eighty show coming back home. We went on a little trip to Canada, Ontario, Quebec, <laughs> Brian Adams near the regions to bring you the best of 80s Canadians. Uh, everything we talk about on that show, you can find on Facebook, that 80s show essay on Facebook, including a very serious movie trailer mm-hmm. for The Big Chill yep. and a nightmare of a movie trailer for best defense just watch it just so you can understand wham power resistance (laughs) and how futile it is dory i love before we go i love robocop robocop one only um any subsequent robocop stuff is shit but uh i'm not the only one so listen to this story after nearly 10 long years they finally erected a giant bronze sculpture of robocop okay So in 2011, Robocop fans lobbied the city of Detroit to erect a statue honoring Robocop because, you know, the whole thing took place in Detroit. Okay. And a Kickstarter campaign began and they raised $60,000 to build Robocop. They raised the money, but they've, this is 10 years in the making, between getting permission to erect it and then getting the rights to actually create it, because, well, you can't just create Robocop. We own it. Uh, Paul Verhoeven isn't yeah. going to just hand it over to anybody. They eventually got it right, and they built, they, they made the statue. It stands 11 feet tall, and the base weighs half a ton. It's, I've sent you some photos. We're going to put it on Facebook, that Aisha essay. It is a glorious. I mean... I don't know if glory. I mean, it is glorious. Okay, yes, I will. I will. I'll give it that. It's just. It is glorious. It feels. It feels thirty something years too late, in a way. Like. Yeah. Like, yeah. You know what I mean? Like most people are going to come and see what, it, and they're going to go, "What is this?" Or is it ten, ten years too early? <laughs> hmm. Hmm. So other or. Bizarre. It's not really the right time. Good. No. Yeah. So they make this thing, and they had finally found a place to put it, or they're going to put it in front of a science museum. And then the science museum said, no, we don't want it. <laughs> Find some other place. So now they're stuck with an 11-foot Robocop statue and <laughs> nowhere to put it. They should auction it off. I was going to say the same. The proceeds should go to, like, feeding hungry people in the city because you know that there's some major rich, like, fan of the movie out there who will want it in their bedroom. Well, yeah, yeah. It'll fit in their bedroom, their garden. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, that's what happens when you take your 80s obsession too far and it becomes dangerous and just quite sad. We were teetering on the brink of being, mm, we're like, mm, people like, mm, these guys, these guys. <laughs> This has been That 80 Show. Like I say, everything is on Facebook. Dory, I'm going to put you on the spot again. A lesson. What did we learn this week? It's like at the end of 80s cartoons, like He-Man and stuff. You had to learn a lesson from the show. What did we learn? We learned that you can go to Canada, but you'll always be able to come back. But Dudley Moore is always drunk. So Mm -hmm. profound. And Eddie Murphy can do something wrong. He did wrong. Uh, I'll admit it. Right here. Right here. Eddie Murphy did wrong. 
It's been a fun week. Hope you join me again next week, Dory. You have no choice, actually. I don't. Bye. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>